so this is our panel on addressing ecological risks. And we're going to start off with Lindsay Burroughs. Then we're going to have Arden, who's going to speak to us about psychologically informed climate institutions. And then we're going to have Sophie Theriot, who's going to talk to us about green colonialism at the critical minerals frontier. Great. Um, well, thanks so much, Elise. I feel like that could be a TED Talk. You could really hit the road with that presentation. It was... Um, I think for all of us in here, none of us being civil engineers, that really gave us a lot to think about it in a way that was um, really accessible and digestible. And I am grateful too because of um, the focus of my presentation here is thinking about Indigenous legal institutions and responses to climate change in Canada. So a lot of this morning's conversation has focused importantly on uh, colonial legal institutions, both in Canada and the United States, and the ways that they are uh, trying to respond and create patterns and pathways through this challenge of our time. And the argument, broadly speaking, that I'll be making is that uh, indigenous peoples own legal institutions and legal orders are similarly operating uh, in both Canada, the United States, globally as well, although I'll be focusing on Canada. And so to begin, I brought in with me here um, this dish with one spoon wampum belt. So this was talked about earlier today. Um, and this law was uh, negotiated in the 1500s by uh, members of the Anishinaabe Nation and the Haudenosaunee Confederacy. And the lands through which it connected to are here along the shores of Lake Huron, heading east uh, to the St. Lawrence River. And uh, what was happening here is often these types of wampum agreements came forward because of either a conflict that was already taking place or a recognition that a potential conflict was about to come forward. And with these two very different um, cultures, legal orders, sharing uh, overlapping territories, they saw the need to come up with a way to get along with one another. And so the dish, which is the purple beads in the middle, um, represents the territory, the lands, the waters. And then the white beads in the middle are is a spoon. Um, and the idea here is that there are soft edges uh, on that tool from which we take from the land and that we don't want to have the pokiness of um, some other uh, implements that we could be using to eat. And it's when we have that kind of gentleness and the softness and that recognition of this as a shared territory um, that is finite, that has its natural limits, that we can then come to... Um, live in, in, in greater harmony with one another. So I'll pass this around uh, for a little show and tell, but part of why I wanted to open with this too is we can think, well, where was the legal institution in creating this? Where was the parliament? Where were the courts? Um, where was the legislature? And so of course, when we're thinking about uh, indigenous legal orders, um, certainly historically, those kind of institutional settings looked very different from how we see um, 
often Western law being portrayed today. And importantly, indigenous legal orders today are taking up in some instances, like similar um, institutional expressions of how to engage in decision-making. In the United States, for example, there's a strong presence of tribal courts. Uh, in Canada, that hasn't been taken up as much as an option or yeah, as an opportunity. So uh, what I want to share over the next kind of seven minutes now is five different examples. Oh, that's okay. It doesn't matter. Five different examples that I think are quite interesting that are um, being implemented by Indigenous people's own kind of governance institutions that are having an impact on the, the landscape of ecological governance in Canada, um, which I argue is, is greatly influencing climate, climate response. So um, one kind of opening word too before I share those, those five examples, which might end up being two examples, um, is... There, uh, in Canada, we're thinking about First Nations, Inuit, and Métis as kind of like the divisions that we talk about um, when thinking through Indigenous laws. And a question from a skeptic might be, well, really, how are First Nations impacting climate law in Canada when uh, it's approximately 1 million people in a country of 40 million, and they hold formally about 6% of Canada's land mass. And then uh, on the other side, looking up to the Inuit, it's less than 1% of the population, much less It's 65,000 people. Um, yet they own through the Inuit Taparit, um, thank you, and, which is organized into like four different Inuit kind of advocacy organizations. They formally own and co-manage almost 45% of Canada's land mass in the north, um, which we've just learned is such a critical area for climate um, response, adaptation, mitigation, research, etc. So here we have uh, Natan Obed, the president of ITK, who is kind of the president of half of Canada. And they have this incredible uh, National Inuit Climate Strategy uh, document, which was released a few years ago, that outlines what they view as their obligations as people who have lived in relationship with those lands and waters for generations and generations. And so it's drawing on again, that traditional ecological knowledge um, and putting it into conversation as they see appropriate with um, modern kind of scientific research. So I think that while the numbers are small in terms of population, the land mass is significant. And I think anyone who's worked in kind of extractive industries would really view um, First Nations as kind of mosquitoes. <laughs> that they're trying to always swat away as they're engaging in these projects and trying to figure out like, where is the certainty here and how we can engage in this. And because of the huge diversity of indigenous peoples too, it's not like your negotiation with the Blackfoot is going to be the same as with the Mi'kmaq or the Tilkotin. And so it's bringing up this really kind of dynamic environment uh, as we think about climate response. And it's not one that is harmonized across the country because of that great diversity. 
So um, the, the first thing that I think is exciting that I'm seeing is contemporary indigenous constitution writing. Um, so these constitutional orders used to not be written down in textual ways, but increasingly so they are. And this summer I did some research on how are how is the more than human being approached in these contemporary indigenous constitutions? And it was fascinating to see um, how across the, the, the board and the diversity of legal orders, they're often uh, writing about kind of the rights of the, the, the crawling ones, the winged ones, the, the finned ones, and including them as citizenries within the constitution. They're drawing on the language from the UN Declaration of the Rights of Indigenous Peoples and talking about um, the importance of uh, kind of environmental decision-making, their creation stories. Um, they have language around the seven generations. There's language about thinking about the ways that their ancestors lived in relationship with the earth. And I think it's significant that this is being put into these constitutions because the laws, the positivistic laws that then flow from that are necessarily going to try and find ways to um, give life or meaning to those kind of foundational constitutional principles. So that's one. Uh, another exciting area, how I think Indigenous legal institutions are impacting climate responses through Indigenous protected and conserved areas. And so these IPCAs, as they're called, are really being taken up by the federal government in Canada as a way to achieve their 30 by 30 goal. That is 30% of Canada's landmass um, protected in some way by 2030. And they're providing a lot of money, relatively speaking, for Indigenous communities to be the ones to institute these IPCAs so that they can be doing um, their work in this uh, biodiversity efforts. And I read an interesting paper recently um, whose authors I don't remember, but many co-authors about how um, the areas across the globe that have the highest levels of biodiversity correspond with areas of linguistic diversity, often uh, with indigenous populations and what the authors call local populations. So again, even though this is relatively speaking like these smaller pockets of people, I think there's kind of a yeast-like effect where this tiny bit goes in um, and yet it has this strong, powerful rising capacity. Um, another exciting area is in contemporary treaty making. So in 2014, a number of First Nations on both the Canadian and US side of the border got together to negotiate uh, a Buffalo Treaty. Uh, and this was in kind of Alberta, Montana. And the idea here was to uh, create the, the habitat restoration that was necessary in order to bring about, um, to, to, to revitalize these bison populations. And that has significance both ecologically, um, but also culturally and, and for those different nations uh, coming together both as indigenous peoples, but also as citizens of the United States and citizens of Canada too, as many of them recognize that kind of dual, dual citizenry. And through those, um, there's also conversations right now around doing a similar thing with salmon in the Pacific Northwest, having like a salmon treaty negotiated 
um, that would be between tribes and across borders um, that would have to take into account all of these issues of uh, habitat and um, interjurisdictional laws as well. And then um, and finally, I'll just make a note on the UN Declaration on the Rights of Indigenous Peoples too, because um, so with these examples, we see nations passing constitutions, which is for their own, their own nation. Um, the treaties are them kind of coming together in a multi-jurisdictional way. Um, then we have the IPCAs, which are in a localized into a particular place, um, but have impacts on the provinces where they're created. And then UNDRIP, we have this piece of federal legislation now where all legislation in Canada is supposed to be in line with the principles and the spirit of UNDRIP. And um, that's going to, I think, have an interesting impact as we think through how do we do that? And what are what's going to flow? What kinds of arguments are suddenly going to be more persuasive because of that legal regime? And then Indigenous peoples are really showing up in a strong way in the international uh, forum, going to things like the expert mechanism on the rights of Indigenous peoples, the permanent forum on Indigenous peoples in New York, um, reaching out to the special rapporteur on the rights of Indigenous peoples, all these different international law forums kind of provide like a storytelling mechanism I think to bring people together in unique ways and do that collaborative work that's necessary to move from the local up to a, um, a broader scale to kind of harmonize and coordinate the patterns that they see as important. So I think that's my 15 minute time there. So thanks so much for listening. Yeah. <laughs> Hi, everybody. Uh, first, uh, thanks so much to Cherie for pulling uh, pulling this together. It's it's so fun to have such an interesting group talking about such an important um, set of issues, and I'm really happy that I can be here. So I'm Arden Rowell, rhymes with garden trowel, if you're struggling with the last name. Uh, and I'm going to be talking about uh, building psychologically informed climate institutions, why it's important, uh, and some ideas about what we could do um, uh, to, uh, to, to at least start accomplishing it. So here's the, uh, the overarching kind of thesis of the talk, uh, which is that I think to be effective, climate institutions need to recognize and meaningfully grapple with the psychology of climate harms. And I believe that some of the reason that some institutions have failed to be effective in the past can be traced um, to a failure to understand uh, the psychology of climate harms, a failure to understand how people perceive and think about the harms of climate change. Uh, and so I'll try to convince you of that uh, by the end of the talk today. So here's, here's how I'm going to do that, uh, hopefully. Uh, so first, I'm just going to talk a bit about the psychology of climate harms what it is that makes it, makes climate harms so difficult for people to perceive, to understand, and to value. Then I'll talk about what that means for climate institutions, at least in my view, uh, and then hopefully we'll get to some payoffs and implications. All right, so I, uh, I wrote a book about this, um, this first point, which is that 
environmental harms in general, and this includes now not just climate change, but also uh, pollution harms and harms from ecosystem degradation as well. And environmental harms are generally psychologically difficult for people to perceive, understand, and value. And that's because of specific characteristics of environmental injury. That is the fact that environmental injuries like climate um, uh, tend to be diffuse across space and time. That makes it really hard for people to perceive those harms. It's, it's, it's come up several times already uh, today. Um, uh, distant harms that are far away are hard to visualize. Distant harms um, that are far away in time um, also trigger their own set, their own constellation of cognitive phenomena that lead people to uh, discount them. Uh, in addition, environmental harms are complex. That is, they're multi-causal, they're interactive, um, and, um, uh, and they often involve nonlinear uh, relationships. All of those are things, are things that people struggle to process um, cognitively, and which we therefore have come up with a series of simplifying heuristics to manage. But when you have a legitimately difficult system, like the environment uh, in which a phenomenon are occurring and you apply an overly simplified model, you end up with mistakes. And so that's what happens to people when they try to process um, complex environmental harms. And then finally, and this also touches on uh, uh, actually uh, something that Lindsay was just saying, uh, people struggle to process harms that are non-human in character. So this is essentially um, uh, happens because our brains developed to be social brains, to understand other humans. So huge portions of our brains are devoted to thinking and processing emotional uh, input that comes from other people. And that's why we do things like, for example, uh, look at pieces of toast and see faces in them. Our brains, our social brains are actually imposing humanity on things that are non-human. When things are non-human to begin with though, we struggle. So anyway, so uh, so there's a, a book, I think too long of a book uh, 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 about this that I wrote with Kenworthy Bills. One of the people, one of the authors of this book thought it was too long. I won't, I won't tell you which one it was. I, I, oh wait, I already did tell you. I gave it away. No, okay. Well, it was me. Okay, um, uh, but a portion of it, <laughs> a portion of it, maybe maybe too little of it, uh, talks about climate harms. And so here, all of these problems that I just mentioned also apply when it comes to climate harm. Um, uh, uh, but in addition, there's there's some more things that make climate harms even harder. Here's here's two of them. Uh, uh, one, climate harms are obviously global in character, um, and that means uh, and they and they trigger. Um, in many cases, concerns of extreme magnitude impacts. Extreme magnitude impacts uh, uh, like um, I don't know, snowball earth or something. These are things that humans don't have experience with. And so our heuristic systems of thinking, our uh, sort of uh, cognition, et cetera, are not designed to deal with, um, uh, with that kind of, of problem. Um, and in addition, uh, many of the harms of climate change are foreign. And that triggers a series of concerns having to do with basically in-group, out-group um, bias and um, uh, 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 sort of other problems that make this even harder. Okay, so, um, so let me give you a couple of examples of how this plays out. I'm gonna go very quickly through this one. One way that this, um, that this plays out is that um, uh, we see difficulty in, um, uh, in people processing and thinking about extreme scenarios. That is anything that hasn't come up before um, and uh, anything that isn't immediately visualizable. And so we see this 
problem arising, not just in climate change context, but also in a number of other extreme scenario contexts, like uh, contact with extraterrestrials or the management of artificial general intelligence. Um, but basically, it leads to people entirely discounting low probability but high magnitude events in a way that doesn't necessarily make sense, given even their, um, their expected value, um, but which is a, a poses a number of challenges in, in trying to address. And then an additional aspect of extreme scenarios is that um, uh, is a kind of emotional factor, which is when people are presented with large amounts of depressing information, um, uh, they often will um, basically trigger psychic numbing. They'll just turn off um, as a kind of coping mechanism to not get too depressed. Um, and so we see if you if you give people too much information about genocides, um, uh, for example, after a while, they start to become uh, and numbed. Um, and of course, the same thing can happen when it comes to trying to communicate about um, about some of the worst impacts of climate change. Anyway, I know I'm going pretty quickly here through this part, but uh, that's because here's what I really want to uh, uh, spend a, a chunk of time talking about, which is uh, another example of, the, of a phenomenon that I think really importantly impacts the perception of climate harm and which I don't see legal institutions effectively addressing is uh, the phenomenon of moral disengagement. So moral disengagement was uh, most prominently explored uh, by uh, psychologist Albert Bandura, who wrote this fabulous book called uh, Moral Disengagement, How Good People Can Do Harm and Feel Good About Themselves. Right? And so it's an explanation of how we end up with things, again, like genocide, um, but it also uh, applies, I think, very importantly uh, to how we end up with um, uh, the situation and climate change that we have right now. And so it basically involves a process of people convincing themselves that ethical standards that they might hold in other circumstances don't apply in, to them in a particular context. That is, for example, um, that, um, uh, that they have not actually harmed people that they have harmed um, or that the harm that they've caused um, is not so bad. And there are sort of a bunch of different um, uh, kind of techniques that people use largely subconsciously uh, to accomplish this, to, to avoid the pain of feeling that they've caused harm to others. Um, and Bandura and now others have gone through and sort of categorized these, researched each of these, and each of them I think we can see quite clearly in the climate context across uh, multiple, um, uh, both in the institutional context and also in the individual context. But I'll give you a kind of sampling of the kinds of uh, techniques that this leads to. And again, the purpose of all of these, or purpose may be the wrong word, and the impact of all of these is to basically mute the pain that otherwise good people might feel at the thought of causing harm because good people don't want to hurt other people. Good people don't want to do bad things. Um, and so uh, so how do, how do you avoid feeling that hurt? Um, uh, you either didn't cause the harm, right? you, you, you press on the causation point, um, or it wasn't actually harmful. Right? And so each of these strategies um, works on, on some aspect of that. So one, um, one strategy is moral justification. That's basically where uh, you explain that, yes, sure, climate change is happening, um, but, um, uh, but we really need to have this level of emission so that we can promote uh, development and avoid hunger, et cetera. Um, another is euphemistic labeling, where you minimize the apparent harm um, by, for example, um, I don't know, talking about weather as opposed to climate, um, talking about bad weather days. Um, a, a third is an advantageous comparison. 
So this is trying to make the harm that you cause look less bad by pointing to other people who did more harm, right? So, uh, so we see this way too often, of course, in the climate context. Um, but for example, um, a country is wrangling um, over who is the who's the greatest emitter and under and along what standard. Uh, same thing with displacing and diffusing responsibility. So everybody pointing to somebody else as the cause of the problem, another way of kind of muting this harm, this pain that, that otherwise people and, uh, and people within institutions may feel. Uh, and then finally, dehumanizing victims or minimizing the hurt that is caused to them. Um, or, uh, or I would say perhaps, um, I, I, I would say maybe a version of this is also um, uh, suggesting that um, uh, that the harms that are going to be uh, experienced are not going to be so terrible. Note, however, the, the sixth one there, dehumanizing victims, it's already, uh, it's, it's suggesting that you're going to feel less about victims that are non-human, which of course, many of the victims of climate change are non-human to begin with. Um, and so it's an interesting intersection there. All right, so um, what can we do about any of that? And what does that have to do with institutions? And so one of the reasons I wanted to talk about moral, um, uh, blah, 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 sorry, one of the reasons I wanted to talk about this particular phenomenon uh, to begin with is that um, I, there's research that suggests that it's, this at least is reasonably fixable in response to awareness. So if you know, if you learn that moral disengagement is a thing and you start to recognize and are taught to recognize some of these key strategies or again, strategy, uh, 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 possibly not the right term given the subconscious nature of it, but these key um, mechanisms or routes that people use to morally disengage, then good, pretty good evidence suggests that, um, uh, that your moral disengagement will decrease. And my favorite intervention uh, showing this um, it was one where uh, the the um, uh, the person running the study uh, was teaching ninth graders about this phenomenon, and uh, what she did is uh, every time that one of uh, their classmates used one of these um, one of these mechanisms, she would have them hold up a sign that said "pirate excuse," and uh, and doing that um, and having that kind of salient intervention. Um, it meant that they were able to significantly reduce um, moral disengagement uh, and also just to become more aware of it um, in general. So this it, it's not always going to be a remedy in psychological contexts to merely be aware of a bias. Some biases are very uh, resistant to debiasing. But this is one where there's at least some evidence suggesting that awareness alone may be helpful. Um, there's some critical thinking interventions that can be done as well. Um, as can as as some research suggesting that starting conversations or negotiations by uh, reaffirming and um, emphasizing core shared values, like none of us here want to hurt anyone, all of us here care about the environment, even very basic things like that, um, it can help uh, avoid uh, getting in a situation um, uh, where um, uh, negotiations stall because of moral disengagement or um, or we end up with um, widely varying views of, uh, of what's happening. Okay, so what does it all have to do with uh, climate institutions? So I think the main thing that has to do with climate institutions is that the climate change harms, climate harms, are extremely obscure and extremely difficult for individuals to think about, identify, manage um, on their own. And, um, and more so even than environmental harms generally, which are already really hard. Um, so that 
puts additional pressure on legal and non-market solutions. That means that market-based solutions in particular, and uh, this won't come as a surprise to anyone in the room, um, may be insufficient to address climate change. Uh, but it gives us a different way of thinking about why that is. And it also gives us a set of challenges that we have to recognize so that if we're going to build institutions to respond to that, our institutions are taking account of those same challenges. So um, I, that's what I think should happen. That's not what's necessarily happened so far. Um, so uh, many, many climate institutions, and particularly international institutions, um, continue to rely on what I would view as a simplistic model of decision-making. Um, and I think that's problematic. Um, uh, so here I'll give a very quick, <laughs> super quick um, orientation into uh, different modes of decision-making and, and then my own gloss on um, what it is that, um, uh, that uh, we tend to see in climate institutions when it comes to models of decision-making. But basically speaking, um, uh, if we're asking how individuals make decisions, there are at least two different models that we might use to try to answer that question. One is, one is rational choice theory, which is a simplified model. It's a theoretical model, non-empirical non model, where we assume that individuals are going to make decisions that maximize their own self-interest. And obviously, it has a long history in, uh, in law and economics in particular. Another kind of approach uh, you could call an empirical approach. You can call it a psychological approach, a behavioral approach. But basically, you could try to answer the question of how people make decisions um, by looking to empirical research rather than coming up with a simplified theoretical model. And uh, now I have a strong preference myself about which of these models I'm going to use, even though, which is, which is just to give this away, the second one. Um, uh, <laughs> but that said, I, I understand that, that a rational choice theory can ha have some uh, simplifying benefits and in some cases can be useful. Um, however, I think one thing we really need to recognize and when it comes to climate institutions is that this move of just replacing individuals with states and then transferring our models over wholesale is potentially is potentially problematic it's potentially it's likely to be at least incomplete and it's what's happening now and it's happening now in a world where it's mostly actually rational choice theory that's being transferred over. Right? So this is a double mistake in my view. It's replacing states with individuals in a kind of weird, monstrous sense, right? And there may be important differences in decision-making between these two beasts. And it's transferring over theories of individual decision-making from rational choice theory instead of an empirically based set of expectations about individual decisions which would at least be more accurate when it comes to the individual decisions, right? So I think there are multiple problems going on with current expectations within climate institutions about what it is, how it is that people are making decisions. Um, both of those likely need to be addressed. I think this question of how do you deal with, you know, state decision-making versus individual is very hard. And I don't know what the right answer, I don't know how you should figure this out. I don't think anybody else knows right now either, although I think that that would be a fruitful area for research. What I think can be done now, though, is that we can enrich our understanding of decision-making, at least by individuals, including individuals who work within states, um, uh, to be based on empirical research and uh, uh, reflecting the best state of our knowledge um, uh, rather than a sort of, you know, sort of uh, thoughtlessly continuing to accept a rational choice um, assumption. So let me give you 
uh, yeah, let me give you an example about how it is that that shift, at least that one shift from thinking about um, uh, uh, thinking about decision making in rational choice um, a context versus a kind of empirically informed um, uh, uh, approach. Um, it could help us in thinking about some of the uh, some of the, the, the problems that have been intractable or very difficult when it comes to managing uh, managing climate change. Um, so, so here's here's my first example, which is take this observation that the greatest historical emitters, uh, like um, uh, the United States, have really resisted even being characterized as having been <laughs> the historically greatest emitters. Um, why is that? Is that the U.S. being uh, strategic and trying to like pull one over on people, right? Or is it the U.S. sort of sincerely, you could say, misperceiving the harm that they have caused, right? Is this a world where we have a bad actor who's trying to trick us, or is it a world where um, uh, and, and maybe even a, a, a a laudable sense of not wanting to feel like you've hurt someone um, uh, leads you to misperceive what's going on. Which of these accounts you have of what's of, of, of why it is um, and that there's a reluctance um, uh, to sort of take ownership of a harm um, uh, can have important consequences both in negotiations and also in how it is that we develop um, safeguards and responses from there. Uh, in general, you could just say polluters often underestimate the externalities of their actions. Is that because they're strategic? Um, like could be, of course, but is it merely because they're strategic? Well, I mean, the research on moral uh, disengagement suggests that even if they're not strategic, they're likely to sincerely underperceive the effects of their actions, right? And so what we're dealing with is a whole bunch of people and institutions who are sincerely underperceiving. That's a different world than one I think we need to recognize and incorporate into our institutional structures um, and then one where everybody is greedy and trying to trick everyone else. Um, it, same thing when it comes to individual uh, decision making. So, um, uh, so why can it be so difficult to get some individuals to recognize their participation in, or even the existence of, climate harms? Um, uh, is it because they're they're being shifty, um, or is it because it's very hard to realize that you are the cause of something terrible? Um, and again, the, the more that we think. Um, uh, Whichever of these is going on, uh, we should um, uh, probably develop different institutional um, institutional responses. And since I think it is often the fact, often the case, that at least part of what's going on is a sincere uh, misperception, um, that's what I'd like to see. Um, that's what I'd like to see focused on um, in, in climate institutions in the future. I think even if we just take moral disengagement as an example of how it is that incorporating more empirical and behavioral assumptions about decision-making into climate institutions um, might be helpful. I think we can get some pretty si significant payoffs. I mean, especially uh, given that this is not really that large of, of a shift. Um, one is that the more that you think about um, the other people sitting around a table as people who are good people who don't want to hurt other people, um, rather than people who are trying to trick you, um, uh, the more a trust may be built. And uh, and so we could have some benefits there. Could have increased uh, improvements in uh, communication, not only across um, decision makers and policymakers, but also with the public, uh, if we have better models for understanding how it is that people uh, perceive and make decisions um, and a more effective policy um, um, overall. And there's a couple of different strategies we could, we could uh, use to potentially achieve that, but, uh, but let me, just wrap up by coming back to 
what I what my main point was, which I hope I uh, have um, have convinced you of, which is I think to be effective, climate institutions um, need to recognize and grapple with the psychology of climate harms, and that um, and that doing so offers some opportunities uh, for improving the effectiveness of uh, climate law and policy. Thanks. I tentatively entitled this paper, which is still very much a work in progress, I should say, Green Colonialism at the Critical Mineral Frontiers Towards a Just Energy Transition for Indigenous Peoples. The idea from this research came out from a highly mediatized conflict that recently opposed the Inu of Washak Manutnam to a junior mining company, Murchison Minerals, specializing in the exploration of minerals such as nickel and cobalt used in green energy technology. Uh, so shortly in August 2023, just a few weeks after I'd left uh, the community of Washat, where I'd heard a lot about the importance of the land for the Inu, Murchison Minerals left its exploration camp south of Vermont, Quebec, in the, in the territory known by the Inu as Nitasinan, after more than a year of pressure from the community. While Murchison Minerals described its activities as essential to the quickly evolving clean energy revolution, the community seeks to protect this part of Netasenan, which is intensely used by the Inu for traditional activities, as well as for the transmission of culture and knowledge. In opposing Murchison Minerals' exploration plan, the community asserted its territorial rights over Nitasenen, its lack of consent to the project, and its responsibility to protect the most sensitive areas of its territories from industrial development. Such conflicts, and I could have used uh, other examples actually, are likely to multiply in the coming years as the energy transition accelerates in response to the climate crisis and with it, the global demand for critical minerals. While critical minerals are needed to build the renewable energy infrastructure required to decarbonize our energy systems, the risk and benefits associated with extractive industries are not distributed equitably across territories and communities. In particular, the intensification of mining activities places increasing pressure on indigenous peoples, adding to the legacy of past and ongoing industrial activities on these same territories, a dynamics that some scholars and grassroots organizations have termed green colonialism or green extractivism. My paper uses a climate and environmental justice perspective to examine the implications of dominant energy transition and critical minerals discourses for indigenous peoples and their rights in the Canadian context. I argue that while renewable energy technologies and infrastructure are necessary to decarbonize our economies and mitigate the impacts of climate change, the ever-increasing demand for critical minerals and the discourses used to justify it risk reinforcing pre-existing settler colonial processes of dispossession. 
Therefore, a just energy transition should efficiently respond to the climate crisis, yet in a way that promotes the territorial rights and self-determination of Indigenous peoples according to their own legal orders and conceptions of environmental justice. So the first part of this uh, research project consists in analyzing the policy and industry discourses about critical minerals in Canada. So just a few words on uh, what are the so-called uh, critical minerals, which is not easy to capture since minerals that are considered critical may vary from country to country and also over time, depending on multiple uh, factors that I won't discuss today. The Canadian government for its part uh, considers a mineral to be critical if it is essential to Canada's energy security, required for our transition to a low carbon economy, or if it is a source of strategic minerals for our partners and allies. Like according to those criteria, uh, Canada has identified 31 uh, critical minerals, six of them uh, receiving priority status, that is lithium, graphite, nickel, cobalt, copper, and rare earth elements. So this list of critical minerals, as well as others in provinces and territories, uh, were elaborated uh, with the adoption of cr the critical mineral strategies uh, that uh, emerged uh, in the past few years uh, at the federal level, but also in many provinces and territories. The first one being uh, the one adopted by the government of Quebec in 2020, and the last one adopted just a few weeks ago uh, by uh, Newfoundland and uh, Labrador. So these critical mineral strategies aim to stimulate investment and accelerate the development of critical minerals. And it is this material that I am uh, analyzing as part uh, as this research project. So according to uh, this uh, early analysis of those policies, uh, the, the, these public policies justify the urgency of discovering, extracting, and transforming critical minerals on the basis of essentially three lines of argument. So the first uh, line of argument emphasizes the vital role of critical minerals in the transition to a net uh, zero emission economy and fight against uh, climate change. This is found uh, in uh, more or less, in fact, in the different uh, strategies, very strongly in the federal one that I'm quoting here. We find uh, phrases such as without critical minerals, there can be no energy transition for Canada and the world. So critical minerals are an essential part of climate change, uh, fighting climate change. The second line of argument uh, emphasizes the imperative to secure the supply chains of critical minerals for Canada and its uh, its allies. Uh, we find this uh, discourse very strongly uh, in uh, the federal strategy, but also in some others, including uh, the Ontario uh, strategy. So Canada is depicted as a secure and reliable supplier or a safe jurisdiction to provide itself, but also the world uh, with uh, critical uh, minerals. 
And finally, uh, taking, which is central, in fact, to all critical mineral strategies across the country, is this generational opportunity presented by critical minerals for economic growth and prosperity. Uh, so this is really a transversal theme uh, that is like very present, in fact, at the core of the uh, critical mineral strategies. And here uh, I will quote uh, the slogan uh, that opens the Quebec uh, critical mineral strategy that captures it very well. Let's advance the energy transition, which is essential to the fight against climate change. Let's create wealth by adding value to our critical and strategic minerals. It is also stronger than me uh, to uh, quote here former uh, premier uh, of uh, Manitoba, who, uh, when launching uh, Manitoba's critical mineral strategy uh, last uh, last July, uh, said, I uh, declare that Manitoba is like the Costco of critical minerals. If you need it, we have it, uh, which shows very well uh, the uh, primarily like economic incentive behind go the government's will to develop critical minerals. Similar line of discourses are found uh, in the industry. Uh, I won't go uh, through it in details, but I'm quoting here the Canadian Mining Association of Canada in a recent document in 2023. Mining is essential to the global energy transition. Climate change is the critical issue facing the globe over the next century. Minerals and metals will help the world transition to a low carbon future. And we find similar discourses on the website of mining uh, companies and uh, mining organization that present, in fact, the mining industry as a sort of climate savior. These discourses translates in concrete measures and actions that will lead in an acceleration of mining activities in the country, including massive public and private investments to stimulate exploration and accelerate production of critical minerals. And also a pressure that has been observed, in fact, uh, around the world uh, to fast track extractive projects and to streamline regulatory approval processes to accelerate the development uh, of critical minerals. So overall, the dominant approach to the energy transition, while invoking ideas of transformation, innovation, and sustainability, is largely grounded in the settler colonial extractivist logics, culture, and power structure that produced the climate crisis in the first place. These logics, I argue, could further exacerbate the dispossession of indigenous that the indigenous peoples have experienced and that they continue experiencing as a result of past and present extractive activities under traditional lands. Renewable energy triumphalism, to borrow the expression from Teresa Kramars, emphasizes the global benefits of the energy transition, while largely obscuring the more localized environmental, social, and cultural impacts of the extractive activities associated with green technology. 
The energy transition thus creates its own sacrifice zones, a term used in the environmental justice movement and literature that some scholars have recently reframed as green sacrifice zones to include places and populations that will be disproportionately affected by the solutions to transition to a low-carbon economy, such as critical mineral development. In Canada, as clearly emphasized in the Canadian Critical Mineral Strategy, the majority of current and future critical mineral projects are located on or near the traditional territories of Indigenous people, who will bear, bear a disproportionate burden of the socio-ecological impacts of the extractive activities and infrastructure associated with the energy transition. So I won't go in details into it, but the mining life cycle, uh, it is quite well documented from early exploration to mine closure and rehabilitation can have considerable socio-ecological impacts on indigenous communities. It is also important to emphasize that for many indigenous peoples, these impacts occur in the backdrop of the legacy of past and present industrial development on their traditional lands, including the flooding of vast areas by hydroelectric dams, massive deforestation, and the thousands of orphaned and abandoned mining sites uh, across the country, as you can see uh, from uh, the picture here, some sites dating from multiple uh, decades, uh, but some sites recently found, including uh, some in Nunavik, exploration site in Nunavik, uh, that were found uh, this summer abandoned, which shows uh, that there are reason to fear that the increasing mining activities could have a very negative impact on the land, and that some practice have yet to fully change. These impacts are also adding to the socio-ecological cumulative impacts of climate change on Indigenous peoples' homeland in livelihood. So Indigenous peoples who contribute only marginally to greenhouse gas emissions are also disproportionately affected by climate change, especially in the North, as shown eloquently by Liz DeVoy's presentation, with ice and permafrost melting and significant changes in ecosystems and biodiversity, which are exerting an ever-increasing pressure on Indigenous people's traditional activities and food systems, among other impacts. So these observations lead me to reflect on the pathways to adjust energy transitions for indigenous peoples. The recognition and protection of indigenous peoples inherent right to land and resources, to self-determination and to consultation and free prior and informed consent are widely seen as necessary conditions for achieving greater justice for indigenous peoples in the context of extractive development. These rights are enshrined uh, in the United Nations Declaration on the Rights of Indigenous Peoples. I'm showing here uh, two key provisions of this uh, declaration, Article 3, on uh, the right to self-determination, which, according to the literature involves the capacity for Indigenous peoples to control their own destinies, including 
existing in relation to their traditional territories, land and resources. Control that is uh, exercised in part uh, by the free, uh, the principle of free prior and informed consent. I won't read it here, but I'm quoting uh, Article 32, Paragraph 2 uh, of the Declaration that provides uh, for uh, the consultation, uh, the obligation of government to consult uh, in order to uh, obtain uh, Indigenous uh, people's uh, consent prior to the approval uh, of a project affecting their lands or territories and other resources. I should uh, mention here that uh, the Government of Canada and of British Columbia have both formally committed to take all measures necessary to ensure that the law of Canada and British Columbia are consistent uh, with the declaration by adopting uh, statutes to uh, implement it in their respective legal, uh, legal orders. The meaning of self, the right to self-determination and free prior and informed consent are uh, subject to uh, debates in the literature, debates that turn very often around uh, free prior informed consent as a process versus free uh, prior and informed consent as a veto, uh, debates that are still ongoing. And while they on, are on, ongoing on an everyday basis, Indigenous peoples enact their inner jurisdiction in their homelands in accordance with their own legal and political orders, as I illustrated at the beginning of this presentation with the case of Washak, Mac, Mani, Utenam. I propose in this project that instead of uh, continuing these argumentation between FPECAS process as veto, we may find the meaning of self-determination and free prior and informed consent in the context of mining, in indigenous laws and practices, including in indigenous constitutions, consultation and consent protocols, mining policies, and indigenous-led impact assessment processes, among other uh, expression of indigenous legal orders. This project, uh, however, uh, faces at the moment structural, important structural obstacles uh, that are uh, coming from uh, the critical mineral strategies in the country, but also uh, in uh, the way Canada and the provinces and territories conduct their relationship with Indigenous peoples. For instance, Canadian critical mineral strategies are uh, really focused when they when they talk about indigenous peoples on the procedural duty to consult and accommodate, and on terms such as economic reconciliation uh, and uh, depicting indigenous peoples mainly as stakeholders or as partners of the uh, extractive industries. So, in short, even if indigenous peoples do uh, participate effectively in mining they are depicting they are assumed through these policies as uh, desiring uh, mining development on their traditional traditional lands uh, an assumption that can be uh, that can be quite uh, problematic. Uh, I should mention, however, that the federal strategies do contain quite extensive references to uh, the UN Declaration, as well as the UN uh, Declaration Act. Uh, however, uh, it should be emphasized that mining is primarily under uh, provincial jurisdiction, so uh, these uh, the, the federal strategy may not echo at many stages and in, in, uh, in relation to uh, many uh, mining projects, especially that there's a very 
very high threshold for uh, federal impact assessment for uh, mining projects. And we still need uh, to see the impact on this of the recent reference uh, on the Impact Assessment Act that may perhaps reduce the scope of a federal impact assessment in the country. I would also mention the pressure to fast track critical mineral project that is antithetical to the principles of pre prior informed consent, as well as to the principle of reconciliation. And finally, the paper will uh, address the issue of the colonial mining legal frameworks that are still uh, in place in most uh, provinces and territories that are based on free entry, uh, what we call free entry mining uh, and systems of mining claims that are structured in such a way uh, that prevent any uh, consultation prior to the acquisition of mining claims on indigenous people's lands and that our leading mining uh, proponent to conduct some exploration activities even without consulting indigenous peoples who are uh, for whom it is uh, a homeland. Uh, I will mention here without discussing them that there are uh, several cases, one recently decided by the British uh, uh, Supreme Court, uh, one uh, that has been recently heard by the Quebec Superior Court and a former from Yukon, uh, in which free entry mining systems systems have been uh, constitutionally challenged under Section 35 of the Constitution Act uh, with uh, some level of success. For instance, British Columbia has 18 months to uh, provide for consultation prior to the acquisition of mining claims on Indigenous people's lands. But as it is, these, um, these legal frameworks are prioritizing mining over other land uses and will play a, a role in helping to accelerate uh, mining in the context of the energy transition. So a few concluding thoughts. Uh, first, to recognize that decarbonizing the uh, energy systems can promote climate justice for Indigenous peoples who are disproportionately affected by climate change and who can benefit from renewable energy projects and from mining development under certain conditions. So it's not to say that all those minerals should necessarily stay underground uh, and uh, should not be uh, used for the energy transition, which is necessary. However, the infrastructure and technologies on which the dominant approach to energy transition is based require intensive and extensive levels of extraction that can exacerbate environmental injustices and the historical dispossession of indigenous peoples. So to uh, capture it through the words of uh, researchers Dana Scott and Adrian Smith, climate justice requires considerations not only uh, of whether to tackle climate justice by transitioning from a, fo a fossil fuel economy, but more profoundly of how to undertake that transition, bearing in mind the, dis the distributional effects related to renewable energy transition. Thinking the energy transition more sustainably could be done through the lens of indigenous environmental justice. Uh, I mentioned the, wor the work of McGregor, Todd, uh, 
Kyle White, uh, which uh, means that we should understand the close link between environmental degradation and settler processes of land dispossession, center indigenous ontologies, pedagogies, knowledge, relationships, experience, and legal orders in thinking about solutions to both climate change and energy transition, and enact indigenous people's self-determination and sovereignty. I will conclude with these words from Nikki Skous from Northern Confluence. We can't mine our way out of the climate crisis. So this should lead us to reflect about alternative pathways for a truly sustainable and just transition, asking ourselves how we move ourselves around, how we produce our food, how we consume and how we build our cities to eliminate our dependency on fossil fuel while not creating new unsustainable dependency on critical minerals. Thank you.